just before I pray. Uh, we've been singing of mercy. I can't make promises, but uh, we might view this as a mercy uh, if it comes true. But we are very uh, close, we think, on uh, a youth director. Uh, could fall apart, never done till it's done, so don't mishear me. But uh, from both uh, parties' sides, uh, some really exciting things uh, are happening. And uh, hopefully by uh, sometime in June, we'll have more uh, to say. But I felt like I should uh, let you know that a lot of work has been going on. Uh, and uh, those that have been involved in this search uh, are really uh, encouraged and enthusiastic about the background and uh, experience and strengths. And uh, somebody who's likely to be with us for a while, if, uh, if all... Uh, comes together, so uh, be thankful for that. Uh, speaking of praying, Brad, you and Lynn are doing the prayer with folks up front. Lynn and Tom, okay. Uh, that's right, you're going to be in the foyer. Uh, I'm going to ask you guys if you would come closer up to the front, like you know, towards the bottom of the stair, stairs on both sides, uh, just so you're more visible. And uh, I would really ask several of you to go up and pray with them about the Japan mission thing that Brad mentioned and about VBS. We have a need for uh, more involvement, uh, not only of people inviting visitors, but some more helpers. Uh, so this is the time for us to uh, cry out for, to the Lord for those things. And it's a good thing for us to pray together in any other needs that uh, you have someone on your heart, something going on in your own life. Uh, take advantage of this time to pray with uh, some of our members, sometimes some of our elders will be up front at the end of the service. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we think of the things that we have sung and heard read, words of testimony, how great are you? How great is your justice and your mercy and your grace? Would you give us ears to hear by your word and by your spirit, we would see you more clearly. And we pray, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. We're going to be in Matthew 18 uh, this week, uh, focusing on a couple of the parables in that chapter, but I'm going to try to quickly uh, walk us uh, through the chapter with more emphasis in some places than others. And I want to give you a lens through which to view the message. I think it will help us, and it's included in the title. As I was studying this, uh, I thought about our nature uh, uh, and, and how true it is that, uh, that I want to be called good. I mean, I liked it when my kids said, you're a good boy. Uh, I hoped it meant more than when we said to the dog, good dog, because uh, we knew the dog wasn't always good. Uh, and I knew that was certainly true of me. Uh, but in one way or another, we're trying to get people to call us good. And there are some good things about that, and uh, there are some bad things about that. And I think Jesus helps us see and understand. We are good in the sense, and this has been a thread through our songs and readings, uh, we are good in a sense that we've been made good by God. Every human being, uh, inherent value made in the image of God. But part of the lens we need is that we're no longer good in the fullness in that our rebellion against God, who alone is the definer of and the ultimate good, uh, says there is not goodness in that rebellion and we 
are broken rebels, and we so often don't take seriously even thinking about what we consider good, let alone what God says is good. Uh, Jesus came, the eternal Son of God, taking on flesh and offers goodness, a new heart that affirms what is good. Uh, But we really can't think too highly of ourselves apart from Him and ultimately His goodness. And let's face it, uh, all of us, whether we're believers or not, we not only don't live up to God's standards, uh, what troubles everybody is we don't even live up to our own. And that is the difficulty. And when difficulties go on in the world, we are struck with that anew. So let's dive in to the text. Uh, Quickly want to read through verses 1 through 9. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Oof. Can't help but interject... uh, When I first started studying theology broadly, uh, there was a wave in the late 1800s that's still with us in some churches that uh, the God of the Old Testament is a God of uh, justice and and law, and the God of the New Testament uh, is a God of uh, total mercy and total love. Uh, uh, Wow, it's hard to read both the Old Testament and the New Testament and not see love and grace in the Old Testament and hard words from the Lord Jesus. He's not easy on his disciples. Uh, He's not easy on the church because uh, he desires to use us. Verse 7, woe to the world for temptations to sin. Broadens it out from the disciples. For it is necessary that temptations come. In other words, it happens because of our rebellion. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. It must have been really fascinating to be in that first group of disciples. Jesus has told them at the end of 16 that he's going to die after he's called them to follow him uh, into the new kingdom. 17, chapter 17, the transfiguration. Again, he tells them he's going to die. We studied last week about the distress that caused Peter and Jesus' unique way of showing Peter, I've got this and I've got you even though I'm going away. And I mentioned in passing a week or so ago that I think the beginning of this chapter Uh, of the disciples wondering uh, who's the greatest. It isn't just their selfishness. They're like us. They tend to be self-centered and self-involved. But it's also that Jesus has promised them a role in the kingdom, and they were used to when there was a change in the king of the kingdom. Who's next in charge? Who's the king? So they were maybe speculating in part on what's going to happen if Jesus is not here and in charge, then who is going to be the greatest? Who's going to be elevated?
And then Jesus uh, tells them in verses 2 through 4, unless you turn, it's not the standard word for repentance, but it's turn from the way you're looking at greatness to a different way. Boy, that's something the world needs to hear. Turn from the way you look at greatness and look at it this way. Unless you do, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven, let alone be the greatest in it. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I may have mentioned to you that uh, children, no doubt, though many were the apple of their parents' eyes in society up until probably the 19th century, uh, so many children died and the economy was so different that children were a necessity to survive, to carry on the trade, to have enough earners, to do enough work. Uh, but they couldn't work when they were little, and so they weren't valued as much unless they stayed healthy enough to contribute. And when Jesus lifts up a child, it's not our sentimental way of looking at children. It's the fact that he's lifting up one who is the least in the society, a child who might not even make it to adulthood, who's not fully valued, who can't earn a living, which is why the disciples, you think they didn't need this? Remember when uh, they tried to keep the children from getting to Jesus? I mean, they can't fill Judas' money bag for us anymore. Uh, They don't have any money. Uh, And Jesus welcomes the least of society to him, the children. And what Jesus is doing here is really a a parable in action. Uh, I think I told you at the beginning of the series that uh, the word parable in the Greek is the little para, uh, para alongside, and Uh, bale from balo to cast so it's like casting two ideas alongside one another so what he's doing here is lifting up the idea of a child who is the least of these and then putting us next to the child and says think about what's great the way you think about this child the one that's not great is the one that's great and children knew they weren't great Uh, they knew they were at the mercy of their fathers. In the Roman Empire, fathers could kill their children legally if they got upset with them. And so here's one that's the least. And Jesus is saying we need to look at adults the same way that we look at children. And that those uh, who hinder folks from seeing themselves in this way deserve serious, serious warning. And so in verses 7 through 9, Jesus broadens his instruction to the whole world. We saw that woe to the world for temptations to sin. Woe to the one by whom the temptations come. The subject is still entering the kingdom of heaven and being great at it. Uh, We don't want to hinder others becoming humble like the child and seeing what they are like before the face of God. Greatness in the kingdom is knowing you are, no matter what you've thought about yourself, truly one of the least in and of yourself. The Scripture tells us over and over again in dozens of ways, we have nothing that we have not been given. Did you get your own life? Did you give it to yourself? Did you get your situation in life and the gifts that you have that enabled you maybe to earn more money than somebody else? Uh, Did you get the opportunity, did you create it for yourself that put you in a place where you could earn and gain status the way the world views status? Did that all come from you? What should every believer instantly say? No, of course not. It's all a gift. It's all of grace. It's all of God's providence. 
So what am I boasting about? If anyone would boast, the Scripture says over and over again, boast in the Lord. So greatness in the kingdom is knowing that you are the least, the little one. You're little, you're the last, not the first. And to be humble about it, to own it, and being prepared to see Jesus' grace and delight in it. Um, as we grieve, and how we should, when something happens, like what happened in Uvalde, Texas last week, uh, we lift up the families that lost those kids. But I ask you to think, in addition, about these warnings from Jesus for those who lead others astray and lead them to sin and stumble. The shooter bears the immediate blame. But what are we doing to our children and to our teens? You make the list. I'm not going to make it for you. But what are, what are the messages that our society, decade by decade, has been communicating to our culture about the intrinsic value of human life and who gives it and who gets to take it? And what happens when adults can do whatever they want to, even with their kids' lives? What happens when we don't deal seriously with drugs, when we teach in our schools that people don't have ultimate value, that they're a blob of molecules? When decade by decade by decade, all the families in the country, uh, in terms of being single parents, uh, have a statistic that is lower than black American families uh, were, who, by the way, were at their best back in the 1950s or so. And as they've gone down, now everybody has gone down because we've been communicating a message, a culture. And then people make billions off video games, and I'm not here to preach down on video games, but I'm just asking us to think when when we take away security, when we take away meaning, and we say we're going to make millions of violent games, no matter what it does to our kids and their depression and the increase in suicide, this is not an issue of politics. Making it an issue of politics is to say, I won't listen to Jesus, who condemns everybody. He's an equal opportunity offender. And so if you're hearing this in a way that's narrow or to, you don't want to listen because of the way people are trained to listen today and to make things political, you're saying, I don't want to listen to Jesus because he's asking you, what does your culture, your state, your group do to hinder little ones who are growing up to be big ones? And our society does a lot to teach them that they're nothing on the one hand, to teach them to live for pleasure only, on the other hand, and to teach them, on the other hand, that they can be really big like the biggest of the big, and so we hero-worship the wealthy, those who think that they're the biggest. When Jesus would say to the wealthy and to the poor, be poor in spirit. Hard for me to preach this message, but I'm far more concerned that Jesus be misunderstood than that I be misunderstood. So please pray that that is the direction the Spirit of God would work. It's time to weep for adults who so much want to be able to do anything that they want to do and to be comfortable with their own choices by removing all guidance and restrictions for their children. We're setting our children free where children shouldn't be free because we want to be free no matter what. 
And Jesus has strong words for us. And that leads to the first of the two parables of grace. Because this is a message about grace. The lost sheep wasn't good. He was lost. He ran away. But God's shepherds are to have hearts good towards those who are lost. Matthew 18.10 See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine uh, on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it. More than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is it not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little... So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. He's not talking about who's saved and who's not saved. He's saying about these children, don't lead them astray. Don't cause them to stumble. Don't do things that would cause them to perish. And he says, see that you don't despise one of these little ones. And he's talking parabolically, not just about the children whom he's honored for knowing they're little, but about everybody that's growing up and learning about life. And after the strong warnings he's already given, he turns up the heat. Did you hear about the angels? Did you read about the angels? You know, why does Jesus throw that phrase in there? I think he's saying uh, that, uh, by the way, uh, you think how you treat the least, the little, the last doesn't matter. Uh, God has a pre-cell phone, pre-hidden camera, instant reporting system. That the angels who watch over those who are being drawn to him stand before the face of God and tell him what's going on. So don't think you can hide from him. As you look at your own deeds and excuse yourselves. And society, don't think that God isn't still the judge of men and nations. Don't think that we don't reap what we sow. Again, I say it's more descriptive than punity, but when God says we reap what we sow, He's saying when we do things to cause stumbling, stumbling comes. And the judgment of God and the wrath of God is the stumbling. And you don't police it with laws and police forces. And isn't it ironic how we call for more laws when we don't enforce the ones we have? And I'm not talking about which laws are good and which are bad. Don't get political on me here. I'm not. I'm just saying be logical. Think. Whatever your politics. So he says, what do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray? Uh, Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains? And in Luke's setting, uh, uh, in the open country? Boy, what a risky love of God. He leaves them there. And don't miss Jesus' tenderness in Luke's telling of this, and I think it's a different situation, a different telling. Jesus is rebuking the scribes and the Pharisees who say, Jesus hangs out uh, and eats with sinners and tax gatherers. He can't be like, that's not like God. Jesus isn't from God. And so he tells them things that they know are true. The scribes and the Pharisees agree with him when he says the coin that's lost, it's worth seeking a coin. A coin has value. A sheep is lost. It's worth seeking a sheep. Everybody knows a sheep has value. But what about a prodigal son who's really gone off the rails and taken his inheritance and spent it? Uh, No! The best studies that have been done in uh, the village culture of the Middle East, even to our day, if a son had done that and then he came back, if the father didn't discipline him, the community would have. And the best case for him, if he wasn't killed by the community for the shame he brought them, would he go off to some 
uncle's place and never be heard from again at the main place or invited back for any celebrations. But Jesus says God is not like that. In the eyes of Jesus, the sheep and the children are not little, and people who think they're big need to turn and get little like they truly are. We have nothing that we haven't been given. The lost sheep couldn't do a thing to save itself. It couldn't earn its ways to God's shoulder or to have his arms wrapped around it. I love that in Luke's Jesus telling that's recording, recorded in Luke when the shepherd finds the sheep who's as good as dead. By the way, we are least, little, last, lost, and as good as dead because the sheep was as good as dead if he hadn't been found out in the wild by himself. And he was a little sheep because Jesus picked him up and flung him over his shoulders and I just I hope you'll just get little and think about what it would be like uh, as a small sheep, a lamb, to be thrown over a shepherd's shoulders who loved you that much and have him wrap his arms around your legs to hold you. It's another way where Jesus is saying, I got you. I got this. Even in the middle of all the difficulties. The ones God knows have repented. The ones that God knows have repented are those who've rightly come to see themselves as needing mercy and grace alone, who see and own that they are the last, the lowest, the least, the lost, the already condemned, and who want to let Jesus' greatness shine by their own weakness and by the never-earned love of God. Got to move fast. Second, those who own their being least, last, little, and lost are those in whom the Father and His true shepherds rejoice greatly. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer, tax collector. Let me pause there. I've heard a lot of people teach and other people hear, including me at times on the hearing side. I hope I never preached it this way. Uh, as if that phrase is not an unusual phrase after the judgment that Jesus is talking about. Let him be like a sinner and a tax collector. Uh, what does Jesus, how, how does Jesus treat sinners and tax collectors? What was Matthew? A tax collector. <laughs> Now, it's not that Matthew didn't need to repent and see himself little and need to grow, but even in the passage, which is one of the foundational passages the church has used through the centuries uh, about church discipline, he's not saying reject these people that sin completely. There's a serious deal, and there's more to say about it. Uh, And he goes on to say, truly, verse 18, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, Uh, they ask it will be done for them by my father in heaven for where two or three are gathered in my name there I am among them and the church sometimes has gotten pretty big about this stuff we got the power we're the ones that make the final judgment and I don't have time to talk about it this morning but there are positive reasons that church discipline is really important but I can tell you how many times I've heard these verses read through verse 20 Without verse 21, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? 
And Jesus says, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Whoa, Jesus, I thought you were being harsh in discipline. I thought this message was about discipline. Jesus says, no, it's about forbearance and mercy because God wants everyone whom he's calling himself to thrive. And so even the way we look at discipline is with a desire to lift one another up. I can't spend much time on this, but it's about uh, those who encourage uh, haughtiness before men and God and, and how we are to become humble again. Uh, don't miss that it begins if your brother sins against you. This is self-assessed harm. We think we've been hurt. We assess that. And that we need a truth to speak the truth in love with those we think hurt us, uh, but also we need help in being sure it was sin. You know, uh, we look at the process and we don't forget what's going on. You go tell your brother that you think he or she hurt you. That's a good thing. That actually creates good fellowship in the church, not bad fellowship. Because offenses aren't hidden. But if that doesn't work out real well, you're, you aren't allowed to let it go. If you don't think it worked out well. You go find two wise people in the church and you take them with you. And guess what? Who's being analyzed in that next get-together? Just the person you say has offended you? No, wise brothers and sisters may end up saying, you you weren't sinned against. You got your feelings hurt, but, but where's the sin? Or they might end up saying, you really were sinned against. And they tell the one you think is the offender. This is a process that when put into reality is called godly fellowship. Surprise, surprise that that's what Jesus wants in his church. And what happens when we don't confront one another and things get swept under the rugs? False stories spread. Division occurs. And messes happen in churches. Sound familiar to anybody? That's what happens. This is a serious deal. But Jesus is emphasizing forbearance, desiring to see all our brothers and sisters thrive even stronger. And if you think that it isn't about forbearance, jump ahead if you've got uh, your Bible open uh, to the very end of Matthew 18, verses 34 and 35. We'll get there in just a moment, but we're going to be moving fast. And in his anger, his master, this is the master who'd forgiven one servant, and that servant, we'll read it in a moment, was harsh towards somebody who owed him money. When he sees that harsh treatment, he says to the jailers, until he should pay all his debt, put him in jail, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Don't you ever think Matthew 18 is not about forgiveness? Starts with that softness, ends with that need for forbearance and mercy, and everything that's done and discipline is important But everything is within that context. Jesus will not let us forget it. So very quickly, third point. Forgiveness flows from receiving God's grace in Christ and knowing where you'd be without him. How can Jesus make such a strong statement in verses 34 and 35? It's in uh, the parable, verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared, it's a parable, to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle One was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. 
So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now, if you don't understand one thing, you can't understand that parable. And what you need to understand is he owes 10,000 talents. You know what that is? 20 years laborer's wages. It's highly unlikely that selling everything he had himself, his wife, his kids, his possessions, would ever pay back the master the value that he was owed. But he's promising, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, just, just be nice to me. And so the master forgives him. Remember, it's a parable. Jesus is pointing to some aspects of what God is like. But what happens? Verse 28. When the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. A denarii is a one-day laborer's wage. So he owes a little over three months' wages, not 20 years. And after he's forgiven 20 years' worth, look what he does to this one who owes him. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then the master summoned him, the first one he'd forgiven, and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, it's a parable, it's a story. We don't know all of the details, but I think Jesus expects us to draw this point. What was that first servant going to get out of the one who owed him money? A hundred days. I'm not going to multiply uh, 365 by... uh, 20 years, but you do the math. Uh, That was going to get him nowhere towards really giving back to the master what the master was owed, but he didn't owe it anymore. The master had forgiven him. So what is this issue of wanting to get the hundred days about? It's I've got to pay back the master something. Why? Why? because I want to be called good. We don't like it that we can't pay back God. We don't like it that our religious deeds are never enough, never will be, never could be. Why do people act religious? Whether it's church religion or societal religion, we're coming up with new religions all the time to say that we're good. Because if we can't do anything, then we're really not good unless God calls us good. And God only calls us good in one place, when we receive the good shepherd. And when Jesus said, why do you call me good? Only God is good. By the way, that's almost a parable. Because he's causing them to think, uh, why are you calling me good? Think I look like God? You hope God acts like I act? That's the gospel in seed form that is there in the heart of it. 
So when I know the darkness my heart is capable of, Stephen, I loved your words that you not only aren't perfect, we knew that, uh, but that, that you know how much weaker you are because you've seen your weakness. Uh, that's what all discipline and discipleship is about. And, uh, and I've got to be quick in some applications here. Uh, we're basically done except for that. I've been fairly direct in the after-worship meetings a couple weeks ago uh, after the session communicated to you. And, but as I've been studying these passages and I've been thinking about some of the things that you all have been talking to me about, uh, you know, I've talked about what I saw happen with the session, with the pastors, with the staff. And, and you know the one group I really haven't been tough on in the stuff that I said? Get ready. I sort of said it earlier in the sermon. It's you. There were a lot of things that happened here over the last four, five, six years that I think some believers in this church knew some of the actions were wrong or they certainly thought they were wrong on the part of particular individual parties. But not many went to those brothers or sisters and spoke to them. I mean, they were leaders. They were pastors. But the people who need it the most are the pastors. Because churches are really good at helping pastors feel big. When the pastor's biggest job is to stay little and let Jesus be big. And I don't have time to flesh it out, but you flesh it out in your life groups and your discussions. It is not a small thing not to tell one another what we think is the truth and not to let others correct us if what we think is true and was a hurt isn't really what we thought it was and to help the body be that way. Because you know what happens when you live in a body that's like that? You don't ever want to leave because it's so rare. And so my prayer for UPC is that you would use the rest of this interim, and I hope it's short, I'm not tired of you. Some of you may be tired of me. But I want you to get ready to be a church that just won't let that kind of lack of binding brotherhood that walks through hurts where we know the real battle is getting straight with our own hearts and seeing ourselves as little and least and last and delighting in Jesus because of the way He is. That's, that's who we are. And we always want to blame somebody else we want it to be a group or a subgroup problem. Uh, I bought a book I meant to buy when it came out a year or two ago, the Babylon Bee a satirical book, How to Be a Perfect Christian, Your Comprehensive Guide to Flawless Spiritual Living. Chapter 1, Joining the Right Church, has a, a fictional or distorted quotation that says it's from C.S. Lewis. Here's what it says. If you've ever felt a modicum of displeasure at your church, even if just for a fleeting second, get out of there immediately and find a new one. I'm going to skip some of this and end with this. Uh, maybe find another parable that it fits and bring it up later. But if we begin to understand the reality that Jesus is talking about and living out, uh, the gospel will become even more beautiful to us. Because we will understand even more what a mess the world is. We've got a lot of crude people in this church. And 
you can tell that I'm an unsettling guy. I'm always unsettled in myself. I'm always trying to figure things out. I'm always trying to, and I remember back in the 60s and 70s when I was first in crew, one of Bill Bright's famous, favorite slogans for recruiting staff was come help change the world. And I knew it did a lot of good, but it never really settled right with me. And the more I studied theology in the Bible, I realized it's because of what the lens I told you to look at this sermon from, seeing that only God is good and how broken we are. And today we have a similar slogan. We keep at it for getting Christians engaged in the world, and we should be involved in the world. But we use phrases like transforming the culture or transforming the world. Now, we can transform people's lives in significant ways with real people in real local places. One of the things I love about the history of this church and even what's going on right now is there's a lot of that going on. But our focus shouldn't be on the broader culture as much as it should be the people around us. We can make a real difference in their lives. But if we think we're going to transform the world, that we're going to really change the world apart from Jesus coming back, we can make a difference but we're not going to transform it. We're getting thrown at us, a lot of figures, and, and heaven only knows. So even the world tries to get us to see our sin, but not always honestly. You know, racism is a big issue in the day, and it should be, always. It never goes away, totally. And a lot of you have been taught figures in school about you know, how many black Africans were sent across the Atlantic and, or to Britain. You know what I read this week, and uh, it's well documented, uh, almost never gets talked about, just about French historians are about the only ones in the world, according to the people I've read, that are actually writing about it, that during the years of African slavery, and don't forget that it was African families, African kings, African nations that were selling their family members and their tribe members, but there were somewhere between 14 and 17 million black Africans who went not west across the Atlantic, but who went east from the Arab slave traders. And a lot of us don't even know that because it just isn't talked about. And you know one of the reasons it's not talked about? is because they were shrewd enough in the places those 14 to 17 million slaves were sold to castrate the males so that there would be no next generations to remember and create bitterness. Not being political here. I'm just saying believe what Jesus says about you, not what the world says about you. And what he says about everybody. Best studies indicate probably 40 million people in the world today in slavery of one kind or another. As, more, as, as many or more than in, in all the centuries of slavery. That's no diminishing of the horrors of what our forebears did. But it shows you human nature. And it isn't black, Caucasian, and look at how the Japanese treated the Chinese and the Koreans. Look at what the Chinese do today to the Uyghur women, making them live with non-Uyghur men and have their children. Why? Because it breaks down the culture. Oh, 
brothers and sisters, the world needs Jesus, not anger. The world needs people who deliberately choose to be little and weak and tender before others and who ask questions gently when they challenge people. The world needs the church not just to come alongside them, but to be different than them. To be a people who welcome anybody from any ethnicity and count them immediately as equal or better than ourselves. We do not worship a little Jesus. And if he's little in our eyes, we're too big.